So far on my journey into Britain's slaving past, I've taken the roads less travelled, heading to rural Welsh cottages, chocolate factories and exploring scientific findings. But I can't forget the cities that became distinct emblems of the British slave trade, as they made their fortune from the backs of the enslaved. How does a city deal with such a bloody legacy? This question is what's brought me to Liverpool. The city has a reputation as a workers' stronghold. It's famous for its tight-knit communities, its rich working-class history, and of course, its two football clubs, Liverpool FC and Everton. Liverpool has always stood tall for those at the bottom of the financial ladder. Yet, as a port city, it flourished as a direct result of the goods and riches pouring in from Britain's slave colonies, which is why it's home to the International Slavery Museum, the only space of its kind in the UK which grapples with a complex history spanning continents and centuries. I'm Moya Lothi McLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history, and my own past at the same time. This is Human Resources. We opened in 2007, so what, we're over a, a decade old. This is Dr Richard Benjamin, the head of Liverpool's International Slavery Museum. I spoke with Richard via Zoom about his work and the museum. That museum is the National Museum of Transatlantic Slavery and... What that means is that we cover a vast amount of information, for instance, life in West Africa, prior to the arrival of Europeans to Africa, we talk about enslavement and the Middle Passage and what life was like in the Americas, legacies today and how that affects contemporary communities. I mean, that's it. That's an incredibly broad overview. It's obviously a lot more complex than that, but basically it's divided into three actual galleries. And when I say we were opened in, in 2007, that was the bicentenary of the abolition of the uh, British Slave Trade Act. And there was government support for museums and community organisations and temporary exhibitions on the subject. So we made a deliberate attempt to open in 2007 to, to get maximum profile. So yes, that's why we came about, and uh, we've had four million visitors since we opened, so successful in, in footfall, and we can talk about many of the other things that we do, you know, and how we think we've been doing a, an important, playing an important role on uh, developing the narrative in, in Liverpool and the UK, which is much needed. For those of you who haven't been to Liverpool, and sadly I was unable to travel there for this interview, I asked Richard to paint a picture and take us on a virtual tour of the sites that tell the story of the city's past. Well, first of all, you have to visit the waterfront, the Royal Albert Dock. That's the area that it's called. And if you don't know Liverpool, there's a lot of signs directing you to the dock. So you've got to go to the waterfront because Liverpool is a port city. It's a city built round the river, the Mersey. You know, it's the lifeblood of the city of Liverpool and that allowed it to do what we're talking about, to be engaged in the transatlantic slave trade. So you have to come down to the dock. And do you know, if you did come down and you went to a shopping centre called Liverpool One, that's actually built over the old dock, which is under the Liverpool One shopping centre. So even though the docks that are here now some of them wouldn't have been exactly in the same places during the 18th century. So then if you were to take a walk up into the town, where would you go? OK, well, look, from a personal perspective, I'm not going to tell you every street, but a lot of the street names in Liverpool are named after individuals involved 
in the transatlantic slave pen. It's a big, debatable, sensitive issue for the city, as it is for many cities, but it is for Liverpool, because even though we've led the way, we are by no shape or form the finished article. So there's a lot of things we need to do as a, as a city. If you were to go to one of the main shopping streets called Bold Street, and it's named after Jonas Bold, who was a trader in enslaved Africans. Now, at the moment, if you're walking on that street, you wouldn't know that. So there is a, there is a movement within the city. There is a, a task force that has been put together by Liverpool City Council, of, of which some of the museum staff, myself included, key community contacts, local historians and members of the council sit on to start putting together some new interpretation around some of the street names. So finally... We've started moving on this, it's taken far too long. But in the next few years, if you were to come to Liverpool, hopefully you would be able to at least see some of the street names. Bull Street might be one of them. There's discussion on what streets they are now. And it would give you some interpretation, let you know who Jonas Bold was. Many towns and cities across Britain are reckoning with their past and how historic figures with brutal legacies should be remembered. The toppling of Edward Colston's statue in Bristol is just the tip of the iceberg. I wanted to know how Liverpool came to house the International Slavery Museum. Historically, Liverpool was the epicentre of the transatlantic slave trade from the 1740s up until the early part of the 19th century and the Abolition Act of 1807. And uh, So Liverpool as a location is obviously very important. And it, it wasn't necessarily the first or the only part, of course, involved in that, but Liverpool took it to another level. It had the infrastructure and the finances to sadly, sadly have it that the city itself was very much built or mainly built on its involvement with the transatlantic slave trade. And at the end of the day, the enslavement of Africans. From 1994 up until 2006, in the basement of the Maritime was what was called the Transatlantic Slavery Gallery. It was a permanent gallery and it was part of the Merseyside Maritime Museum. So in one sense, we were literally physically developing from a gallery to a museum. So that was important that the subject matter gained prominence physically. What sort of parallel does it tell us that the Slavery Museum was initially a gallery, literally in the basement of another museum? What does that tell us about the way we're understanding the role of Britain now in the slave trade compared to when your work was being confined to the bottom of the building? Yeah, well, I think the early 90s, it showed you where the national narrative was. Well, one, it was the only one, remember. So, so we're talking in Liverpool, it took a while to get there, but you know, there was nothing else that existed in the rest of the country. So not just saying Liverpool was, was lagging behind where it should have been, but the, the whole UK was. And, you know, the gallery itself came about because there was an investment, uh, private money was put into it. So it wasn't even as if the government had bled on this or the city council. They were involved, but it was very much somebody had privately put some money into it, that it was even had the finance to, to physically develop. I always say to people that the reason ISM is here now, because it's part of a much longer narrative that basically comes from community activism, in the city of Liverpool from the very earliest in the mid-80s. What did that community activism look like? Many members of the local Liverpool black community, whether that be historians, activists, we have a community advisory body that has civic leaders on, independent individuals who are interested. So we've always had a close affinity to listening 
to our partners from the Liverpool black community, which of course is not homogenous. It's really very broad and located in different parts of the city. But the point is there are some key figures and individuals that we've been working with over the years. There was a very important book that was released, a report that was released in 88 called Loosen the Shackles. And that report talked about the many reasons for social deprivation within the city. A few years after the Liverpool uprising, which I'm sure many people know about, but one of the most important recommendations that that report made, and it had members of the local community involved in that, was that the city didn't have a depository of Liverpool's black history. You know, there was no archive, there was no museum. So this was 88, you know, so this was six years before you even got a transatlantic slavery gallery. The Slavery Museum that I had kind of came about from a lot of discussions, a lot of activism, and I'd like to think we're in a place where Liverpool's kind of leading the way nationally, at least on those conversations now. A lot of work to do, but we're in a better position, a more advanced position than many of the other cities in this country. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Uprising, also known as the Tox Death Riots of 1981, rose after long-standing tensions between local police and the black community. It's a tension still felt across Britain and the world today. Liverpool seems to be further ahead in recognising its past than other places in the UK. I want to know why that is. Is it because it was a key site of the slave trade in the UK? What is it that sets Liverpool apart in the way you guys approach this? My own view on that is community activism and involvement. Community voices that needed to be heard. Where to start? Let's pick one key individual. Uh, The late, great Dorothy Kuya was a very well-respected historian and activist. Sadly, Dorothy passed several years ago now, but our annual lecture is called the Dorothy Curious Slave Remembrance Lecture, and we work closely with Dorothy's family. So there's very close links with with the members of the Curious family now, which is very, very important. Dorothy was one of the first people to do what was called a a slavery trail around the city centre and the the docks. It wasn't the museum, it wasn't the city council. And what Dorothy did, she worked with civic leaders, with people in the museum, way before I kind of arrived in Liverpool. And she was a critical voice. 
you know, and Dorothy was a was a, a very she was a forceful individual, but she cared, and she understood that the museums had a real big part to play in this, and she would be critical when needed, but she was interested. So for me, there's been a lot of key figures, particularly from the Liverpool Black community, that have been with the museum service in the city on this journey. There was too many to mention. Point is, they're people I know that people my team knows, and you might not always get that in places like Bristol or London or Glasgow. Not that there isn't community activism or community voices, but maybe it's not being as joined up as where Liverpool is. So not saying that Liverpool is kind of like, you know, the gleaming example, but I think it's fair to say we are further along in certain discussions and relationships and closeness than maybe the other cities in this country have. And not just in this country, France, Spain, Germany. You know, there's a lot of other countries that are now kind of struggling with the legacies of not only slavery, but colonialism and empire. So a lot of work to do, but we're in a better place than other places. Clearly, the museum is doing so much work to help educate Liverpool and beyond, but what's next? We're just on the cusp of the next phase of our project, where we're developing and revisioning the current display galleries on the third floor. And we already own a building that is on the Royal Albert Dock as well. It's called the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Building. It's an iconic building, first building that you see as you come into the Royal Albert Dock. And we've had that building for about 10 years. And we open it now and again for workshops, the odd lecture. We're just about to embark on a major capital project, 20 million plus, to turn the MLK building into our front door and main museum space, four times the size, but we would connect it to the display galleries in the Merseyside Maritime Museum. And why that's important, the subject demands a front door, and it actually doesn't have one in this country yet. Whereas you go to the US and you go to, say, Washington, D.C., Many of your listeners may have been the National Museum of African-American History and Culture in the centre of D.C., near the White House, prominent location. The content is important. The community engagement is central and the voices that you hear in that museum. But equally, having a front door that's really prominent makes a real statement. Something you just said there is incredibly interesting. Do you think it says anything about current British attitudes towards our involvement with slavery in the past, that even our buildings commemorating historical black figures are named after ones who were predominantly working in America for civil rights? The MLK building, its technical name is the Dock Traffic Office, which sounds really mundane because it was, I know, it was the administrative centre in the 19th century of the Albert Dock. So even though it's a very imposing building, you know, it's never been a publicly accessible building. We've had that building since, you know, 2008, 2009. In 2012, we had an opportunity to bring over MLK III, the son of Dr. Martin Luther King, to give our annual Dorothy Kuya Slavery Remembrance Lecture. And every year we invite a prominent individual from the UK or, or the US or wherever to give a talk around transatlantic slavery or the legacies of slavery. So we seized an opportunity at that time to rename the building, the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. building, whilst his son was stood on the steps. You know, I'm a pragmatist. And at that moment in time, it made sense to make 
a statement like that when you're trying to get funding to move forward. Totally get your point. Personally, although no one's ever asked me this before, it wasn't actually my choice of name. There were other names that myself and members of the team preferred, and some of them were local activists. That was a discussion we had. Somebody like Dorothy Cooey, Eric Lynch, or other minded people, I think it'd be marvellous to name the building then. But in 212, would it have moved us forward to where we needed to be? We seized an opportunity. Absolutely get your point. And moving forward, though, you know, if we get the money to develop, of course, there's going to be lots of parts of the museum that you may be able to name after prominent civil rights activists or prominent black abolitionists in, in this country. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend that I don't right (laughs) now. Hold it in, hold on. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said. Not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you will instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. Have you ever felt the need or been stymied by the need to have a sensitivity around some of the public reaction when you're opening up the conversation about British slave legacies because it's something they don't want to hear? We've been fortunate as a as a team, and it's just a very small team, by the way. It's been very agile. So in all museums, after planning advance, of course you do. You, you can't just um, uh, be gung-ho and, and say, right, next week we're doing this or... You know, Saying that, because we've been agile, we've never had anyone breathing down our neck saying you shouldn't do this. If it's something we haven't done, it's because we don't think it's the right time to do it or we've not necessarily had all the financial resources that we've needed to do something. But we've never had anyone from governments or anybody like that saying to us, you shouldn't be doing that. So that's a positive. I mean, why that's happened, you'd have to speak to them. But we've had a great degree of autonomy in what we've done so I personally as head of the museum have never not been able to do something subject wise. In terms of having difficult conversations and teaching people of all ages about the legacy of Britain's slave trade what are the major points we need to be hitting now regarding those stories? 
What do we need to be telling people? Because they know slavery happened. They know Britain was involved, but how do we bring it to their door and say, look, it wasn't just this thing that happened millions of miles away. It's something that affected every aspect of society and shaped the UK as we know it today. How does the museum approach getting that across? We have very recently developed a kind of loose forum of other museums in other cities in this country to come together to say, look, I think we need to be more joined up in how we tell the story, how we engage our publics with this narrative, because there isn't a joined up narrative. You know, what the museums, museums say in Bristol and what they say in, say, Docklands in London or what they might say in a new museum in Glasgow is not what we say necessarily in Liverpool. So one, I do think we need to be speaking more and we need to offer our publics a more joined up narrative. So if somebody came from Bristol to Glasgow or Glasgow to London and they visited a either a purpose-built facility like us or a gallery, they'd maybe understand the magnitude of the subject matter. Now, you take this onto an international level, all right? So we're part of a global project, a curatorial project with the Smithsonian, who I talked about before, with Brown University, Slave and Justice Centre, Tropper Museum Amsterdam, museums in Nantes, in Dakar, there is a global ongoing project at the moment that is designed to develop the international narrative around this subject because it doesn't exist. So put the UK aside, this is an issue internationally. How can you think about the issues in the US without knowing that many of the ships that would have taken your ancestors to the shores and the countries that you now live in originated from Liverpool or Bristol? How can you really understand the magnitude of that? if you don't know why a city like Liverpool was involved. And no one's ever really joined that up. But if you go to somewhere like the Smithsonian and the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, one of the things you will see, and it was a big move for them, is that they have a transatlantic slavery gallery. And they also have a domestic slavery gallery. Because the reality is in the US, for instance, more people, whether they be African-American or not, understand domestic issues rather than the international issue. And the curators and the director of the Smithsonian wanted people to at least start understanding that there was an international dimension before you even get to something that you're gonna call domestic slavery. So that's an enormous undertaking, but it does exist as a project. And as I said, there is this kind of loose forum of museums and museum services in, in the UK that are now having that discussion, kind of led by us. So I think in the future, there's going to be a much more joined up narrative and that will only be beneficial for some of the people listening here, for me, for other curators, because it isn't joined up. Speaking to Richard is refreshing. The ISM has thrived despite decades of neglect from Westminster-based seats of power, and it's thanks to Liverpool's diverse and active community. It offers a blueprint for how official sites of remembrance, like the ISM, can explore the complicated histories they represent with nuance, continually updated understanding, and without fear. For cities like Liverpool, the past cannot be washed from its docks. It must be reconciled and reckoned with. But not every site has taken the same approach to its slaving connections. 
Human Resources was produced by Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Risa Lumba and Dr. Alison Bennett. Sound design by Ben Yelovitz with additional original compositions by Caleb Keneally. Rory Boyle is our production assistant. This is a Broccoli production.